Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh. I'm joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing great, David. I couldn't be happier unless I were a Pfizer shareholder right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, that, that's a topical uh, 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 comparison because uh, the big news of the past couple of weeks has been the unveiling of appears to be several new uh, vaccines for the coronavirus. Uh, one of which I believe was approved by the UK government and, and several of which are appear to be approved by the US government in, uh, in, in the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, and so we thought we'd talk today about, about vaccines, but especially also about opposition to vaccines, because uh, as this new uh, vaccines are being rolled out, it's not entirely clear that everybody's going to want to take them. Uh, we're already hearing some early rumblings about people who say they're not going to take them for, for whatever reason. Yes, I saw a figure earlier in this week, David, that uh, I think it was 30 uh, percent of people in the UK say they don't they won't take the vaccine. I don't know whether that's true. And I, and I don't know. the pro I can't remember the provenance of the of the statistic. But well, you're seeing a lot of quotations like that. From well, I'm, you know, just sort of anecdotally, I'm hearing you know, lots of people I know who are hesitant about taking a, a brand new vaccine. And so the, and there's sort of, I think there's probably some deep roots for, 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 and, and multiple reasons why people might be hesitant about, uh, you know, uh, taking a vaccine. And I think those oppositions, I think some of them have very, very deep roots, uh, both here in the UK and, and in the United States. Uh, so let's talk about the history of vaccines and opposition to vaccines. Uh, yes, let's do that. Uh, I would begin. Uh, I did see some wag and there's nothing more interesting than a podcast in which people recite things they've seen on Twitter. So, so this is this is gripping, cutting edge stuff. Uh, but I saw some wag on Twitter who said, um, wait, you won't take a vaccine because you don't know what's in it, but you've been eating sausages all these years. <laughs> So make of that what you will. Yeah, uh, yes. But, but yeah. So that, the history of vaccines and and anti and the anti-vaccine movements, in, particularly in the United States, is our theme today. Right. So I mean, I guess if we're going to start at the beginning, uh, it, it's I guess good to go back to, to 1721, uh, where there was opposition to. Uh, I guess this is before vaccines. This is opposition to variolation for smallpox when there was a smallpox outbreak. Frank, do you want to talk about? smallpox and, and what happened in, in, in your home state uh, 300 years ago? Yes, absolutely, David. And, and I think we, we need to stipulate a couple of things at the outset, as we will make clear to people in the next few minutes, we are not historians of medicine or historians of science. Um, so so uh, be, be gentle with us, dear listeners. Um, so in Massachusetts, in, in Boston in particular, um, in 1720 and 21, there was a smallpox outbreak. It was quite severe out of 11,000 people in Boston, 6,000 of them, by one estimate, contracted smallpox, of whom 850 died. So it was a Jeez. very, very severe outbreak. Um, as you know, David, I'm older than you, so I was, I was in primary school then. And, uh, <laughs> and what did um, Cotton Mather say to <laughs> well, you, Frank, when you were... Uh, and well, interestingly, uh, Cotton Mather had a, um, in 1721, Cotton Mather, who was a prominent uh, minister in Boston and came from a family of prominent divines in mm. colonial Massachusetts, somebody threw a, um, a, a bomb through his window 
that did not, or an, an incendiary device, device let's say, yes. um, and say with a with a note that said, "Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you! I will I'll inoculate you with this, with a pox to you." And so, so Cotton Mather was 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 a local minister. He's very very prominent, from a prominent family, and Mather favored what was then known as inoculation. We need to or, or smallpox inoculation. We need to draw a distinction between vaccines, vaccination, and inoculation. Inoculation is a kind of antecedent to to vaccination. Um, and when you inoculate somebody, or at least in terms of smallpox, you're actually exposing them to smallpox an abrasion on the skin. This was a became a common practice in the 18th century um, in in Atlantic world, mm-hmm. but it it's um, it, it's a crude, if you will, antecedent to vaccination, um, which is exposing somebody to an agent which will give them uh, immunity to the disease. That's developed later in the 18th century by a man in England named Edward Jenner, and Mather is an early proponent in America of inoculation. And in response to the Boston smallpox outbreak, which as I said, is quite severe in 1721, Mather advocates inoculation. Now the history of inoculation for for smallpox uh, goes back hundreds and indeed possibly thousands of years. It starts, it's believed in Asia, particularly in East Asia, there's evidence of it being practiced in China. It spreads throughout Asia as as a method. And again, this is the exposing people to a milder form. So what happens with smallpox is if you contract it in the normal way, which is basically by, it's not unlike COVID, by inhaling Mm -hmm. it from somebody infected, you get a much more severe case than if you are exposed to a milder form um, via inoculation. And once somebody survives smallpox, either the mild form or, or the severe form, they have immunity for the rest of their life. life. So that, that's the attraction of, of inoculation. And various forms of inoculation start in Asia. Um, as I said, as long as a thousand years ago, they spread around Asia into Africa. And interestingly, Mather learned of inoculation, and this is according to his own testimony from one an enslaved person that he owned named Onesimus. And Onesimus was the one who told Mather about the fact that he'd been, he had been uh, subjected to a procedure to give him immunity to smallpox. And Mather discussed, uh, sorry, Mather explored this with other enslaved people in Boston at the time, and also um, did some research on what was going on, um, the, the kind of uh, exposure to smallpox or inoculation against smallpox, which Mather would practice, uh, was most prominent at the time in mm. Turkey. And so, so Mather did his research and he became a strong proponent. So apologies, there was a disruption. I had a package at the door. Um, you were getting a whiskey so, delivery. Well, I, I was getting a whiskey delivery. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a long story. So yes, the whiskey rebellion was disrupted by a whiskey delivery. Um, so, so Mather, Mather becomes a, a strong advocate with other local, um, with other uh, basically members of the local elite advocating inoculation in Boston and in response to this this smallpox outbreak, uh, an inoculation program is instituted and it's reasonably successful. One of the challenges with inoculation is you do expose yourself to the disease and so it's not without risk. Some people die as a result, they contract smallpox and die as a result of inoculation during the 18th century, but this is a turning point. But there was pushback. Interestingly, Mather's a minister 
Yeah. And in part, that's because the ministers were educated, of course. And so there's pushback from other ministers. So there are people saying this is the devil's work. This is interfering with God's plan and you shouldn't be doing it. God sends smallpox to punish us for our sins, et cetera. Right, so. right, right. That's right. But also local doctors, again, doctors in the early 18th century mm. are not necessarily trained to the standard that they are today. But there was some skepticism from local medics who felt that this wasn't the, you know, the right way of doing things either. And so there's there's opposition, this kind of elite opposition, but there's also popular opposition to this because people think they're suspicious. They think this is going to spread smallpox, et cetera. Now, now you mentioned the doctors. The, uh, my understanding is the lead doctor opposing Cotton Mather was a doctor by the name of William Douglas. Sounds Scottish, doesn't he? Uh, he? He was, in fact, a graduate of our fine university. Was he? Yes, he was. So, so, so thank you for, for slagging off our employer uh, about the quality <laughs> of medical education in the 18th century, uh, who called it uh, wicked and felonious uh, to, 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 uh, to use this pra- uh, technique. Now, he was later convinced after it turned out it worked, uh, but uh, he was an initial uh, the, the sort of leading skeptic for... Uh, for this practice. Although one of the reasons for his skepticism was, and this, this does speak well of, of Dr. Douglas and our fine institution, you know, is he said there wasn't enough data. Basically, mm. you, you don't know whether this will work or not. Um, and of course, you know, the reason we've had the good, the, the, the good news in the past few weeks about COVID vaccine results is because we're getting the test results that have been done uh, coming in now. And Mm. in fact, my wife's been involved in the Oxford trial here in the UK and has been doing her swabs every week for months, it seems. Um, And so Douglas said, look, you don't, you simply, listen, Reverend Mather, you don't know what you're talking about and you don't have enough data. He wasn't wrong in that. Now, now it turns out that, um, what Mather did, which again is very interesting, was mm. consult um, uh, enslaved people who had knowledge that uh, perhaps Dr. Douglas was not not uh, was not available to Dr. Douglas. Mm. Um, so there's a kind of there's an interesting kind of uh, debate going on about the cultures of knowledge. I think uh, oh, behind all this or under underlying all this, uh, and, but but that sets in motion what we see more or less for the rest of the 18th century, which is there's an established method of inoculation. Again, this wasn't new in the same, it had been around for hundreds of years in other parts of the world, but the knowledge had spread around the Atlantic world and, and it's more or less effective. And again, going forward to the period I, I'm most familiar with during the American Revolution, some work I did earlier in my career on, on prisoners of war during the War of Independence, uh, we see prisoners of war actually inoculating each other on the British prison hulks in New York Harbor, which were horrible places and the death rate was very, very high on those prison ships. But one of the things they were, the, the prisoners themselves were trying to do were, was trying to control smallpox and the outbreak of smallpox on those ships. Mm-hmm. George Washington early on, and Washington had contracted a mild form of, uh, case of smallpox himself in the, in the 1750s in Barbados. Um, but Washington insisted that the Continental Army be inoculated and was a strong advocate of inoculation. And, and, and as we now, and the historians now know, thanks to Elizabeth Fenn's work on, on this, uh, the American War of Independence coincided with a continental outbreak of smallpox in North America. And it ravages all 18th century armies, but it's particularly prevalent uh, during the revolution because of that. And the measures that Washington took in particular, 
uh, it's actually quite a key factor in the success of the Continental Army um, Mm. uh, in that conflict. And so um, this is a becomes an accepted practice, but it's always a controversial practice in part because no, in large part because it is risky. You do risk mm. contracting full-blown smallpox when you jag yourself and give yourself expose yourself to uh, and exposing other people to it because you're that's contagious. right. Um, that's right. So, you know, when you're when you when you're uh, inoculating the army, you basically do it all at one go. Otherwise, it's it's going to potentially cause cause all kinds of problems. Or when civilians do it, I mean, so what? Sure does this and abigail adams does it with her children uh during the, the during the revolution they have to be quarantined for 21 days or a month um while, while they uh, yeah after they undergo this procedure and, and as we know from more uh recent events not everyone is as responsible during quarantine as, as they should be we have abundant evidence to that effect <laughs> right so we actually we get the first actual vaccine, I guess, at the very end of the 18th century with, with, with Jenner's vaccine. Do you know why it's called a vaccine, Frank? Because it comes from the Latin word for cow, because Jenner uses cowpox. Exactly. Which I think is great. So yeah. all vaccines are just, you know, cow medicine, um, which I think so, is So, so Jenner, Jenner creates a vaccine using cowpox, which he injects into an eight-year-old. Jenner is an English doctor. Uh, he lives in, in Gloucestershire, and he injects it into a, an eight-year-old boy. Again, I'm not sure about the ethics of this medical yes. trial. <laughs> and, the, the eight, and then he exposes the boy to smallpox to test whether he's immune, and the boy was immune. And so Jenner develops the first vaccine for smallpox as opposed to inoculation. It, and yes. So the backstory to that was that there were sort of milkmaids who were not getting smallpox because they had previously gotten cowpox from spending a lot of time around cows or something. Uh, yes. Your friend Thomas Jefferson seems to, uh, to have been very interested in this. As he well, he loves this things. stuff. He loves this stuff because, well, first of all, he, he is very interested in science. It is an age when, especially if you're an elite man with an interest in science, you can master a lot of knowledge or knowledge in a lot of areas. And he's widely read. He's a, he's a president of the American Philosophical Society. And he's a strong advocate of vaccination. Um, I think he actually writes some letters to Jenner at one point, uh, congratulating him on his accomplishments. Okay. And, you know, vaccination does become remarkably common, uh, or at least among certain circles by by the mid 19th century. But it's that that point when it becomes uh, more widespread that it actually becomes controversial and there's opposition to it yeah tell us about that david that's the well, we're, in, we're in your century now. we're in my century now okay uh so so you know the, the places where you you find the strongest opposition to to vaccination are, are places um where in fact vaccination was the most common uh and in the 1850s massachusetts starts to require vaccination for children to attend schools uh and this is what causes or becomes the sort of root cause for, for opposition to vaccines because some parents don't want to to expose their their children to, to for whatever reason to to uh, vaccination um, and this like lots of these social movements in the, the 19th century is a transatlantic movement there's a similar opposition to vaccination in the UK which has various laws actually requiring uh, vaccination and when some of these uh, anti-vaccination uh, speakers visit the United States in the, the 1860s and 1870s. That really sort of kicks off 
the anti-vaccination movement. There's an anti-vaccination society of America founded in 1871, a new England anti-compulsory vaccination league in 1882, an anti-vaccination league of New York city in 1885. And a lot of it is about, you know, the, the laws that were requiring, uh, especially children to get, get vaccinated. So, uh, so but, sorry, David, if I, if I can just, yeah. Uh, stop you there and ask a question or two to follow up. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. It starts in Massachusetts over school vaccination, because of course it's worth observing that Massachusetts is an early pioneer in establishing public schools, state supported oh, schools. Sure. So, so that creates the infrastructure. So it seems that the, the key opposition or the, so one of the key sources of opposition to this is the fact that to vaccination is that the state's compelling it. Is that, is that a correct they, assumption? Well, th there's a variety of, of complaints about vaccinations. Um, some people complain that the, the, the vaccine caused people to become ill. Some people, the, the, the vaccines uh, in the 19th century were, were not as, as painless as the ones are, relatively speaking, today. Uh, so there were complaints that, that somebody took a vaccine and fell ill as a consequence. There were complaints that uh, the vaccine originated from an animal product. And they thought people thought that injecting an animal into your body was or uh, pus from an animal. Anyway, they, they they objected to the cow bit of the vaccine. Uh, there were religious objections. There were a whole sort of myriad uh, of of problems people uh, posed. But a lot of it was about the the compulsion factor, the the idea that that the state was imposing itself upon people's bodies in a way that, that they found uh, objectionable. Uh, and this really comes to a head uh, in 1902, uh, again in Massachusetts, where there's a smallpox outbreak, a, a really enormous one in, in Cambridge. Uh, and so the city instituted a mandatory vaccine policy and a man by the name of Henning Jacobson objected. He had had some prior experience with vaccine that hadn't gone very well. And he had some other objections to it. He says, no, I'm not doing it. Uh, and uh, he gets fined by the city of Cambridge for not participating in the uh, in the mandatory uh, vaccine. Uh, and the case actually works its way up to the Supreme Court. In, and in 1905, the Supreme Court says the state has the power uh, to compel or to, to have these kinds of mandatory health requirements uh, for public health and safety. Um, now, and what, so, so, yeah. Uh, is that is that still the that's, uh, that's still the, the law of the land? Um, but now, Misty, what's happened since then is that uh, you know the anti-vaccination movement has said, okay, well, what we need to do is push states to have exemptions for people who who don't want to get a vaccine for a variety of reasons. And so, what you find across the United States right now is a panoply of different regulations in different states about mandatory vaccines, especially for schools, where some states you can have exemptions. Most states you have exemptions if for some reason you are, uh, your health makes it impossible for you to get a vaccine. There are people who have uh, conditions that, that make vaccines untenable for them. Uh, there's other places that have religious exemptions. There's some places that have moral exemptions. There are some places that has, say parents can just sign off for whatever reason, but then they need to fill out some special paperwork every year, but there's a whole range of, of different uh, sort of uh, loopholes that, that have been sort of carved out since then. But um, it's established law in the United States, according yes. to the Supreme Court, that the state can compel you to get a vaccination 
Well, the state in can the interest of public health. Oh, it, with a slight caveat to that, that 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 what happened in the Massachusetts case is that he didn't get the vaccine and he got fined for it. So I don't right. think the Supreme okay. Court has ever said they can strap you to a chair and stick something in your arm. Right. But they can penalize unless, you for unless not they're to, executing you or sending you into war. Right. Um, in which case, there's also been some some cases about about that where people have been required to get vaccines for for military service. Um, but I think you know the thing you know sort of when do you find um, resurgence of anti-vaccination uh, sentiment? You find a resurgence in the 1950s, uh, and this is in part because there's some a whole bunch of new vaccines that come out in the 1950s. Uh, the foremost among them being the, the polio vaccine. And uh, the polio vaccine, of course, is a, was a remarkable development, but some of the early doses of it were not well manufactured and a bunch of kids ended up getting polio as a consequence of the, the first round of polio vaccines. Something in the order of 40,000 cases were spread by the vaccine itself. So there was opposition to vaccines, mandatory vaccines then. Um, you know, and here I, I think there's an interesting parallel going on uh, with, with the anti-vaccination movement and the anti-fluorinated uh, water movement. Yeah, I've, I was just thinking that. Because I mean, that's... They're, they're right at the same time. And that's when fluorinated water becomes introduced in the United States is in the 1950s and 1960s. And you find people objecting to, to the addition of fluorine uh, in, in the water saying that it's first compelling them to, to consume them and they don't want to consume, they have no alternative to, to uh, the water out of their tap. Um, and, and there's also a sense that which people thought that that was uh, sort of a, a gateway to socialized medicine, that there was sort of a, a communist socialist element to it that they objected to on uh, political grounds. Uh, there's a famous, this most famously shows up in the movie uh, Dr. Strangelove, where there's a, uh, what's the name of the um, general, uh, Jack D. Ripper, I think that was his name, who, who said that the fluorine is going to take away your, your, your vital fluids, uh, that, that uh, and the whole thing was a communist plot. And that actually, that scene in the movie is reflecting of, of things people were actually saying on the ground in the 50s and 60s. There are a number of places, communities that rejected fluorine because of people were uncomfortable with, with the addition of, of chemicals into the water. So one thing, I mean, and I guess this is unsurprising, um, but one thing one can observe from this is although concern about vaccination and its predecessor inoculation is a kind of constant in American life. Um, it also reflects the context in which, and the concerns of the day. So to some yeah. extent, people are, are, are uh, their concerns are undoubtedly medical and at some level ideological when it comes to, uh, you know, resisting the, the coercive power of the state, but vaccines become a kind of stand-in for whatever the, or the, the vaccine in question becomes a stand-in for whatever the anxiety of the day is mm -hmm. as well. So whether it's communism, communism and socialized medicine in the fifties or uh, the, uh, you know, dallying with the devil in the 1720s. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, this is, you know, it, it's an anti-vax the anti-vax movement of the day reflects some of the concerns of that day that have nothing to do with 
the medicine pro or con. Is that a fair sure. way? I, I think that, 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 that is a, a, a fair way to characterize it. Um, you know, and I, I guess one of the things we've seen, though, is that there's been, you know, these sort of waves of anti-vaccination sentiment. The past 20 years has seen a real resurgence, I think. Uh, and again, I think there's some global and, and transatlantic dimensions to this, but a, a resurgence in anti-vaccination sentiment over the past 20 years. Why, why do you think that, that so many people now are, are opposed to vaccines? Well... This is a complicated question. Uh, the, the the modern kind of concern about the MMR, the measles, mumps, rubella combined vaccine, mm. um, which is fairly standard, well, it, it is standard, uh, yeah. began, uh, it was associated with an article that appeared in the British Medical Journal, very esteemed, prestigious British Medical Journal, The Lancet, in 1998. And was an article written by a doctor named Andrew Wakefield, um, which argued there was a link, a possible link between the MMR vaccine and autism. Hmm. And that got picked up uh, around the world, but particularly in Britain and the United States or in Western Europe and the United States and really energized an anti-vaccination movement um, or opposition to that particular vaccine. But I think laid the groundwork for the kind of skepticism we're hearing today about the COVID vaccination, for, for example. Hmm. Why that happened? Well, I think there are a number of things at work. Um, one is the internet, it's easier to communicate. <laughs> uh, Wakefield's paper was su subsequently utterly discredited both for his uh, research methods, but also you know, his findings. He was struck off here in the, in the UK uh, from, the, from the medical register, but, but, um, but the damage was done and mm. this took root in, in this, you know, 1998 was just as the internet was really taking off. Um, I also think there are a number of other factors, and this is where we get to anti-vaxxing being a manifestation and reflection of, of what's going on. There was growing skepticism about government in the aftermath of the um, invasion of Iraq, which was very unpopular in both Britain and the United States. Well, uh, the, 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 that, um, I'm not drawing a direct link between the two, but people were skeptical about what government was telling them. And so why mm. should you believe the government if it tells you the MMR jab is okay? You know, right. uh, so I, th I think that was part of it. The other thing is, I think, you know, because of the success of vaccination in the previous generations, we have people in the, both the United States and Britain and, or Western Europe and North America more widely, who haven't grown up with the scourge of childhood diseases that are fatal. Yeah. And so I think people have forgotten just how dangerous some of these diseases are. And we've now seen measles outbreaks as a result of people not getting the MMR jab that have been quite significant. Well, certainly, David, when we were kids, measles wasn't really a serious problem because we all got vaccinated as kids. Yeah, and there was a point in 2000 where the U.S. had temporarily eradicated measles. There had been no transmission for small period of time of, 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 of person to person measles transmission within the United States. And then you've had this massive resurgence because of this um, opposition to, 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 uh, to vaccines. I think you're right that the, the people's sense of, of risk aversion and they don't really know what these diseases look like and know what the diseases do because they've never seen anybody get them. Whereas, you know, they, 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 they perceive this risk with the vaccine. Um, and the risk for the vaccine is very small and the risk of the disease is very large, but they don't 
know that because I've never seen anybody or heard of anybody dying of smallpox because that disease is affected. Yeah. And, and for a while early on in the early aughts, you could say, well, I don't want to subject my child to this risk, mm. however small it might be of getting, of developing autism. But I don't really have to re- worry about measles, mumps, and rubella because everybody else is getting the, the vaccine. And, yeah. and of course, herd immunity, which has become controversial in the COVID context, but mm. herd immunity also works when everybody gets a vaccine. Uh, but it depends on people having a kind of investment in the wider culture <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and a sense of um, citizenship, not in terms of what passport you have, but sort of membership in a, in a community. And, and as opposed to saying, well, no, I'm going to do what I want to do for me hmm. and you know, screw the rest of you. And, and for a while, I think people who didn't get the MMR jag or whose children didn't, benefited from the fact that the vast majority did although now because this has become so entrenched that's no longer the case you know we're losing herd immunity or or it's becoming patchier particularly because in particular areas and it's very interesting to me that this Mm. is this is a characteristic uh in the united states at least of both the left and the right so we get quite kind of progressive parents who won't get vaccines Mm. won't get their children vaccinated as well as kind of conservative Christians who don't want the government in their lives. Um, yes. So the, the, this is, this is a, this movement is, is very interesting in that it cuts across the political divide in interesting ways to, at least to me. Um, but we're losing herd immunity or, or in particular areas we're losing herd immunity. So there was an outbreak in Disneyland uh, or associated with Disneyland in 2014-15 of measles that was quite severe. And that was traced to certain kind of political communities where, where, the opposition to vaccination is quite has become quite pronounced. And I'm mm. quite worried about the COVID vaccine. I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm worried about the response to the COVID vaccine. I'm not worried about the COVID vaccine. Uh, in Because it, particularly in this heightened partisan moment, it's so wrapped up. The question of whether to get the vaccine, it, the, I mean, it, it's like wearing masks. It's now not about science or public health. It's about your political affiliation. Yes, so right. yesterday, um, former presidents Obama, Clinton, and Bush announced that they would, when, when a vaccine is approved by the, by the FDA in the United States, they will publicly get it. And this is meant to send a political message ostensibly a bipartisan political message to Americans. I mm. suspect the people who support President Trump are not going to be impressed by that trio getting no, vaccines. Yeah. You know, they'll <laughs> um, and I and and in order for public health to truly work, you need the public, the whole public to to engage with it. And so I think there's a real concern. And, and to be fair, I think anti-vax sentiment, as you've demonstrated, is also fairly deeply rooted here in the UK. And mm. that skepticism about being compelled and coerced by the government is, uh, you know, Americans have it, uh, but we inherited it from the UK. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, so there's skepticism here as well about that. And I, I think this could be, will be a challenge as the COVID vaccine goes forward. Yeah. I mean, so, some listeners may remember this. Um, about a, a little over a year ago, I actually got mumps in part. I think because so many people had not been been gotten the MMR vaccine. I, I had, but I guess it didn't, I'm part of the 10% for whom it didn't 
uh, immunity didn't stick. Uh, but you know, they, they've had mumps outbreaks in various places, uh, in part because people aren't taking that vaccine. Uh, but I think you made a very interesting point about sort of the ways in which anti-vax sentiment does create these weird pockets of 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 uh, opposition. Uh, you know, the the religious opposition on on the right potentially, the sort of uh, there's a you know as you point out sort of a liberal uh, environmental granola kind of opposition to, to vaccines on, on the left, people who are objecting to the presence of, of mercury in vaccines. Uh, there's a conspiratorial opposition to, yeah. to vaccines where people think there's microchips in the vaccines or some other kind of nefarious plot at work, um, which is something people said in the 50s about, about you know the effect that vaccines would have or fluorinated water would have. Um, I think there's also some some concern uh, thinking about different segments of the American population. I think there's some concerns among African Americans about new vaccines and about the effects of new vaccines. And I think those are fears that are, are rooted in in history and in experience. So we can think about the sort of various ways in which uh, you know African Americans were experimented upon, whether that's you know, Jerry, Jerry Marion Sims experimenting on enslaved women uh, for doing gynecological experiments uh, to things like the Tuskegee, you know, uh, syphilis study where, where, you know, 600 men were, were left with untreated syphilis for 40 years so people could, so doc, white doctors could sort of watch what happened to them when there was a easy, uh, you know, remedy for their illness uh, that was denied to them. And so I think there's a, a you know, within certain segments of the population, uh, both African-Americans, you can find a similar kind of sentiment among, among some Native American communities, you know, fear that they're going to be guinea pigs for uh, this, this project um, and, and are skeptical about, you know, the, the promise that, that science has for, for keeping us safe from, from this disease. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And and I think in rolling out such a, you know, we really want to vaccinate, what's the Earth's population now? Almost 8 billion people, ideally, mm. <laughs> for this disease. Uh, and it may well be a case that we only get partial immunity. We don't know how efficacious these vaccines really will be, mm. or whether like the flu, we may be living with this disease for a long, many years to come because it's going to mutate and therefore we'll get new vaccines every year. It would really, really help if people had faith in, in the vaccine yeah. and, and trust in, in, in trust in the vaccine. But and one, interesting governments, because yeah, that's, that's those right. two things are, 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 are you know, one of the things that made vaccination schemes work in the past is when people trust that the government is, is in the, working in their best interest. But we've seen, again, this is particularly in the, in the country we're from and the country we live in, mm. a real pushback against expertise in the past few years. Yeah, to be sure. And, you know, you're not the boss of me. I, I'm my own expert. Exactly. Um, and, 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 you know, the, uh, trusting the government on a vaccine means basically trusting men and women in white coats and knowing that they did the right thing because they under, they've done the research. Yeah. People I mean, going back to the... The polio vaccine, I think, you know, despite the fact that there was some problems, some really significant problems with this rollout, and as I mentioned, there's this, you know, manufacturing issue that caused lots of children to actually get polio. 
part of the reason why that didn't turn out, the opposition to that didn't become stronger was that was a moment in which people trusted both science and government a lot. You know, that the faith that the American people had that the government would be able to fix the Great Depression, to fight against Nazis, to do all these other things was at a, at a high point. Likewise, their faith in science in the 1950s was, was quite profound. And so people were less skeptical then than I think they are right now. Um, and that sort of speaks to the climate change denial and all these other kinds of issues that we're having right now with, 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 with hostility to, to science as a, a remedy for our problems. One thing that's, that is unhelpful, though, and, and that concerns me that we've seen in the past few days is the way governments have responded to this, uh, both to try and advance their interests but also to make short-term political gains. So here in the UK, mm-hmm. the UK government approved the use of the, I think it's the Pfizer vaccine, the one, the, the, one, the, the super cold one yes. um, that you need two doses of. Um, and they were the first government in Europe and possibly the first government in the world to, to, to approve the use of that, that, that particular vaccine. Yes. And there was a bit of chest pumping and saying, well, we were able to do this because of Brexit and we're not hamstrung by European regulations. It's actually not true. And then uh, when a government minister was asked why Britain was first and managed to, to act more quickly than the United States and its European um, friends, um, the, 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 politician in question said, well, because we're better than they are, we have better systems than they do. And Anthony Fauci yesterday said, uh, well, actually the FDA's approval procedure is the, is the international gold standard and we're not quite there yet. And he subsequently walked that back. It would really be helpful if this didn't turn into a patriotic pissing contest, frankly, yeah. um, because we need, for this to truly work, we need global cooperation. Um, there was a report earlier in the week that with the Oxford vaccine trial, which is actually funded by an American pharmaceutical company, uh, that, that, that people in, in Downing Street wanted to literally put a union flag on each of the doses so that there, this would be kind of a, a message to people about what the, the UK can achieve in, in the era of Brexit. And we could do with all, without all of this nonsense, frankly, um, because this is a global pandemic and it's a global problem and governments need to cooperate with each other on this rather than to uh, try to score cheap political points. Yeah, in, in the science fiction movies, it's, it's always the, the global crises that cause countries to, to overlook their differences and join together to fight against new diseases or aliens or whatever it is. And that clearly is not the case. Because we've we've seen, you know, countries not working together. We've seen. Uh, I heard a story this morning about, uh, you know, wealthy countries buying up all the doses of these potential vaccines. Um, in some cases, well in excess of what they need, and poorer countries are probably going to be, you know, uh, much lower down the list in terms of when they get them, including people who are in very high risk cases in 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 poorer countries. Um, that is very frustrating that, that, that this has become political in, in multiple senses, uh, both in terms of the, the, the international diplomacy of it and in terms of the domestic politics of how it's become politicized. Yeah, it's exposing. I mean, this disease has exposed fissures in every country's domestic politics. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and that's that's an obstacle. But also the, the international scene, you know, uh, 
I truly hope the Nobel Committee just gives the Nobel Med Prize in Medicine next year to all the teams that worked on these, because the fact that mm. one, one announced its findings a week before the other is immaterial, frankly. They all got there with extraordinary speed, and if these vaccines work, it's, an, it's a huge achievement. Mm. So, so I want to add, humanity did the right thing, has been doing the right thing, but we could, we could, we could do without the nonsense, I think. Do without the nonsense. That's like a, a good motto for 2020. Um, <laughs> That's hashtag do without the nonsense. <laughs> yeah. So well, David, I, I mean, I don't know when we'll get it. I mean, the other thing, sorry, at one, one final point, and I think we should wrap up. Hmm. One of my concerns is, you know, the, 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 the um, indications both from the United States, but also from, Britain and Western Europe, uh, is the pandemic's not going away. In fact, it's getting worse. And one of the things that I think paradoxically is contributing to that is the news, the good news about the vaccines. I think some people think, oh, it's over. And actually rolling out and giving vaccines to tens of millions and hundreds of millions and ultimately billions of people is actually incredibly hard to do. Yes. Not, so, so I think we're in for a very bad winter and spring. I'm not terribly, I'm not, this isn't wisdom unique to me in saying that. Uh, before where like things are likely to get better in, ter um, in terms of vaccination. And uh, that also concerns me at the moment. I'm, I'm very concerned about that as well. And I'm worried that the, that the news of the vaccine will cause people to um, make bad choices. But I, sorry, one bit of good news. And I, I, this occurred to me watching the news yesterday. Anybody out there, you know, among our millions of listeners, uh, if, if, if there's a filmmaker out there, I think there's a great movie to be made about a, a heist movie about stealing truckloads of the vaccine. Oh, geez. Um, but it has to be kept super cold. So it's like well, speed. No, that's part it's of like it. that's speed part where it has to be 55 miles an hour, except this has to be at negative whatever. Uh, to, to, otherwise, they're useless. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, well, well, hopefully the vaccine will come out. Um, the rollout be smooth and, and that, that people get vaccinated and um, this pandemic will be behind us by this time next year. Let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. All right. Time for last drops, Frank. What you got? I've got, I want to endorse uh, Smithsonian Magazine, which will be a magazine familiar to many of our listeners. Their um, end of the year top 10 history books. I won't read them all to you, but there are some highlights. It's a very good list. And there are some things on there that we've discussed this year. Uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, is on there. Alexis Coe's book about George Washington, You Never Forget Your First, which we have discussed. And Friend of the Pod, Megan Kate Nelson's book on the Civil War and the American West, um, Three Cornered Wars on the list. And they, all the books on the list look great, right, yeah. uh, are great. So, but I want to endorse that list. Good, good Christmas uh, gift list uh, material right there. Exactly. So check that list out if you're trying to buy a book for a history lover on your list. Uh, what about you, David? What do you have? Uh, well, I just I'm fascinated by the story that has come out of Colombia of, of the discovery of an eight mile long uh, set of, of paintings on stone walls that are more than 12,000 years old. Um, and these are depicting of, of hunting scenes uh, and large megafauna that would have been present in, in the Western Amazon uh, 12,000 years ago. Um, 
and I certainly think they're it's just an amazing uh, discovery. Uh, but also, that I think the the art is is quite beautiful. So uh, I'll so I'll share some pictures with in the show notes. Uh, but but take a look at the the these they're, 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 the paintings are primarily red um, geometric shapes and and stick figures of people and animals. Um, so uh, this really remarkable uh, archaeological discovery that that you know I think fleshes out our understanding of the the early inhabitants of the Americas. And it's twelve thousand years ago, you say? Yes. So does that do anything in terms of our understanding of the timeline of the peopling of the Americas? Uh, it would have if they had found this thirty years ago. Right. Uh, but uh, I mean, I think you know the, the old idea that 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 uh, the sort of Clovis Point idea that 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 people had come following large megafauna woolly mammoths over the ice, uh, the land bridge on the Bering Strait. I mean, I think that whole idea has been been complicated in a variety of ways um, over the past you know thirty or so years. So I think this helps us flesh out that that our understanding of that early period, but I don't think it actually pushes that doesn't push the date back. Right. Right. Interesting. Great. Very cool. All right. Until next week, Frank. Yep. Cheers, David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.